Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. I think this is episode nine. I'm really excited about today uh, because this is a man that I've known since right about the time I arrived in Houston in 2002. He's been covering the NFL since the mid-1950s. He started out as a gopher at a sports station in Buffalo, started working for the Bills after that, where he went from being a ball boy to writing and producing sportscasts for Jack Kemp and the team, traveling to the Bills as part of the radio network. He went on to work for the Oakland Raiders and Al Davis, came to Houston here in the mid-1970s. He's been one of the largest looming figures in sports media in Houston since the 1970s. I am joined today by, like I said, one of my oldest friends in Houston, Barry Warner. Barry, how are you? It's always a pleasure to be with you, but I'd like to correct one thing. Okay, good. I started with the Bills as a high school sophomore in their very first training camp. And it was just an amazing experience. I played football on a Saturday from a high school game, and on Sunday, I'm standing, having a cup of coffee, three hours before the game, with people like Frank Leahy, Sid Gilman, uh, Slingin' Sammy Baugh, <laughs> Frank Trapuca, um, just a, a whole cadre of legendary names in, in, that played in the 40s and the 50s, and Sid Gilman. Sid is with the Los Angeles Chargers at that time, and Sid introduces me to some of the guys on his staff because this was, here we were, we were the fraternity. We were the guys from the Bad News Bears. We were the guys who basically had to sell our, you know, sew our names on the back of the uniforms going up against the monster of the National Football League. Uh So there was this esprit de corps of us against them. And my job, I I go out there, and Sid introduces me to the members of the staff. And he's, you know, there's Jack Faulkner, there's Walt Hackett. Um, He introduces me to this Jewish mafioso-looking character with slick back hair who just got fired for putting USC on probation over recruiting by the name of Al Davis. Mm -hmm. And from there, the last man he introduces me to, he said, Barry, you may have seen this guy on TV up here. Uh, I hired him. I don't know whether he can coach or not. I knew he could play football. But my old mentor, Paul Brown, told me I should, you know, hire this guy as my linebacker coach, meet Chuck Knoll. No kidding. Start of a a wonderful friendship. And every time Chuck and I spoke, we talked about wine first. Yeah. Not football. Right. We talked about well, wine. Because that's what he was. He was like, like that bum Phillips mold of guy, wasn't he? he was, Where he cared, he, was, about, he cared about the person. He was the anti-bum in the sense that he was, 
he was above Belichickian okay. when it comes to his personality and the way that he was going to do it. But there was a warmth behind him that I don't think that uh, scientists at any of our leading hospitals have ever decided that they could do an experiment on with Bill Belichick. So, <laughs> All right? So he had a, he was Belichick with a human side. He was Belichick but, with so, more of a human so, side. Like Bum Phillips with more of a, well, no, because Chuck Noll wasn't like that with his players no, necessarily, was no. he? No. Okay, because I've heard about Chuck Noll after he retired, and uh, it, that's what it was. He to this day, almost like a to this day Terry Bradshaw still hates him. Terry wanted to play for Bum in the worst way, but it could never happen. However, Al Davis was commissioner of the American Football League after being the coach and the owner of Oakland. He goes to the league office to take over for a former World War II uh, aviation hero by the name of Joe Foss, state senator from the state of South Dakota. Al becomes commissioner. And he hires me. He had a plan. Right after my roommate in Buffalo, I lived with Marty Schottenheimer and Pete Gogolak. So right after Gogolak became the first AFL player to jump leagues. It used to be the other way around, from the NFL players playing out their option and coming to the AFL. So you, so you were living with Marty Schottenheimer and Gogolak as they were players. Yes. You were somebody working for the team on the PR side. Right. And, uh, I was and working on the sports for, radio side. Yeah. And, but, you, but you roomed with them. Right. Because back in the old AFL days, that's what you did. They had uh, guys tripled up in rooms. And, and players uh, working with, with, living with team employees and whatnot. But, but Al Davis recognizes something in you. So Al, what, what Al recognizes, I want to go back to a pivotal story. When the teams from the West Coast came to play the East Coast swing, they would hunker down in one of the AFL cities, train in that city after they played the game for the following opponent, fly to Boston, fly to New York, fly back to Niagara Falls, New York, where they practice, and then fly the following week and then go home from there. Okay. A West Coast trip in those days on a DC-3 or a DC-4 loaded with all the equipment that you guys need was about a four-stop, 10-and-a-half to 11-hour flight oh, wow. from Boston or New York to the West Coast. So I got an interview set up with a PR director, Scotty Sterling of the Raiders, to interview Davis on a Saturday afternoon. I also had a Saturday show, a sportscast to do, an hour preview of the Sunday game between six and seven. Okay. So I call up, answers the phone. Coach Davis is sweet. Yeah, I'm Barry Warner. Scotty Sterling has set up a 3.30 interview. Is the coach there, please? No, he's watching film with his coaches right now. Why don't you call back in a half an hour? This goes on two more times. And I am pissed. I am really, really livid. How old were you at this point? Well, let's see. This was in 1964, so I was 21 at the time. Okay. So I go down to the hotel, I walk into the kitchen, 
give somebody five bucks, get a room service cart, a white jacket, and a hat. Who's there? I said, hotel management with a gift for (laughs) Mrs. and Coach Davis. Al opens up the door, and I push the cart, and I said, get your fucking ass down. (laughs) I didn't have a rich Jewish father from Brooklyn paying my way through Syracuse. I'm making like four bucks an hour right now, and you have stiffed me. Now sit your fucking arrogant ass down. Well, Caroli, his wife, was loving it. She had never seen anybody talk to her husband that way. Mm -hmm. So Al meekly sits down. We do the interview. And I go back to the station, cut it up, and get it on the air. No kidding. So Al was unbelievably impressed with my balls. Chutzpah. My chutzpah, yeah, that's exactly what he said to me. And never had a problem with Al from that day on. So when he becomes commissioner of the league, Al comes up with, he was the first person in the history of sports to come up with the term asset value. So this was before analytics, before the term baseball went to the industry right. and all, before players' unions, any of that well, stuff. Well, yeah, he was one of the first guys to really want to measure people. He invented the 40-yard dash as a measurement tool, right? Well, uh, th- that yeah. was Paul Brown, but there were so many other things that... Let me well, stick to my misconceptions okay, of this will, <laughs> Youth must but he be relied, served. But he relied right. heavily on the 40-yard dash. But here's what he did. Okay. In those days, Seth, if you graduated from Cornell... Mm-hmm. You had an opportunity to sign with an AFL team, just say the Bills drafted you, and an NFL team, just say the 49ers drafted you. So you could play the Bills and the 49ers offers back and forth and give you some wiggle room as opposed to today. So what Al wanted to do was to find out what kind of money was being thrown around to the top stars. Because in those days, Seth, we signed half of our first-round picks by homecoming, paid them off illegally. Then we would draft them and say, hey, we signed 93% of our first three-round picks. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Guys were signed illegally the whole time. Was there collusion between the teams and the AFL? No, 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 no. It was was all for one. But you had an agreement. It was all for one. You had an agreement as to... Who was going to draft whom? Or just you had an agreement that if you drafted this guy, this was going to be the contract? Yeah. Okay. So we used to have an all-star game in Buffalo preceding the college all-star game, which ended in 1973 when the uh, NFL champion would play the bevy of collegiate all-stars in Chicago. Yep. Before that, we had in June the coaches' All-American football classic, Tommy Prothrow and Bear Bryant, two independently wealthy men, were tired of reaching into their own pocket and taking care of coaches that did not have tenure at their universities, that had a stroke, that had gotten fired, that couldn't find work, that had heart, whatever it might be at that time. So it was a magnificent, magnificent charity. And we had the who's who in June of every general manager, coach, director of player personnel, all coming to Buffalo. So I've been blessed with a photographic memory, and I knew the difference between Bucko Kilroy, and I knew the difference between, uh, between Bucko and uh, just say um, 
Bobby Walston of the Chicago Bears. And that was in a time and day when it was hard to find film of people, or at least oh, you, yeah. you had to really work to find you, good film of you, prospects. You, you had to work. It, so there wasn't like so you, a lot of guys were just names on paper, right? A, a, a lot of guys, if you had a good relationship with a particular coach, and yeah. say, "Who's the guys that you know when you played Oregon? Who gave you trouble?" And Protho would say, "This guy, that guy, that guy." So what I was supposed to do, I had a 17 state area. I had a Volkswagen, and I would go to practices. My job description, go to practice, hang around like a college kid, and then go to the college beer place where all the jocks went uh-huh. and sit around and shoot the shit and say, hey, I saw that guy from the Bears today. You know, what kind of money are they offering that linebacker? Oh, they're offering him 350 450 and then 550 and a car for his wife, or whatever it might be. <laughs> so my job was to call my boss in New York, Ron Wolf, and give Ron that information. Wow. Six weeks after I'm down here, the merger occurs. Uh-huh. So this wonderful job that I had. <laughs> you're, a, you're a corporate spy. I, I, well, I, I'm, on the, fo- I'm yeah. on the phone calling buddies of mine that went to Georgia, Georgia Tech, or yeah. Louisiana. You know, you had four or five schools there. So I'm calling saying, hey, I'm coming through then. Can I crash with you and save myself the hotel money and yeah. all of that? And uh, the merger occurred. But Al, Al, what Al did, and this is a, a story that has never seen the light of day, Al called every member when the merger occurred, which went behind his back because he wanted to fight the NFL. Mm-hmm. He called every staff member. There were 23 people that worked in the AFL office, and he said, sign this. And well, I want sign it. You don't need your attorney to look at it. He signed every employee there to a two-year contract, which the NFL had to eat. Oh. So all of 1966, all of 1967, uh, the rest of 66, and all of 67 and 68, every employee was grandfathered into a two-year contract. <laughs> so there was a, that, that's a dichotomy yeah. of Al. Uh-huh. That, that he had that loyalty to him, but also... Loyal- well, you know, when you, were, when you talked about breaking into his hotel room and how much he respected you for that, that's what I was told about Lane Kiffin when he was young, brash Lane Kiffin, and he got that job in Oakland... One of the things that Al really liked about it was that Lane would stand up. You know, Lane Lane challenged him. Lane stood up to him. Lane Lane argued with him as he was meeting with him. And Al admires that, but then at the same time, chafes against it, yeah. right? So at some point, did it chafe against? Did your did your brashness chafe against him? No. Or were you guys distant enough that no, it wasn't? No, no, no. Yeah. The thing that separated Al from me one day, I had moved back to Houston, and I had spent. Two years in Denver, one is the assistant to the president of the Denver Nuggets, where I learned all sorts of things about signage, about merch, you know, about all these things working with NBA properties and all of these things. And David Stern would talk to you like we're talking right now. It was that type of, a, of an NBA. And I found out that every day, making great money, having a company car, but getting dressed up in a coat and a tie mm-hmm. was a waste 
of you would have meetings with government authorities because they were partners with us in the in the arena, and it would be these guys are getting paid sick money to do nothing except talk about what we did for forty minutes the previous meeting, and then talk about well you know we didn't have time for it this week so next week we'll talk about something else mm-hmm. stuff that you and I could have taken care of in fifteen minutes right and. I went back into broadcasting, and I worked with Craig Morton in Denver during not one but two back-to-back Super Bowl losses. Wow. Well, I was public enemy number one. I referred to them as the donkeys, and I referred to Dan as Dictator Dan. <laughs> so you were, uh, you know, your persona non grata yeah, for the, I was, uh, the, the staff. Well, I, I predicted they would lose by 20, and they lost 35 to 10. So I was off by five points. The interesting thing. The offensive coordinator for Denver, when Elway was a quarterback, was a kid by the name of Mike Shanahan. Mm-hmm. So Al is getting ready to fire a coach, hire a new coach, and he said, Barry, I need your advice, need your input. And I said, what is it, Al? He said, who on the Denver staff is ready? I said, Mike Shanahan. And here's, he said, tell me why. And I said, real simple, Mike Shanahan spends as much time in a walkthrough with guys like Sam Grady and others that are practice squad guys as he does with Ricky Natil, Mark Jackson, and Steve Watson. And I go, why? He said, because of this, Barry. John Elway is one blind side hit away from going out of the game. These guys got to get used to a guy named Kubiak throwing the rock to him. Mm-hmm. But number two, if Ricky Natil goes out and we miss him for a month, I got to have somebody that's going to step in there and John's going to say, I got confidence in you, not come back into the sign. Like, what the fuck are you doing to me? <laughs> so that's what I owe it to Dan. I owe it to Mr. Bolin, I owe it to Dan, and I owe it to every guy wearing the Bronco orange. Mm -hmm. So I recommended him. There was Joe Bugle, who I loved and was a dear friend of mine, who I knew was going to be a head coach. There was Dan Henning, who I've known since 1960, knew he'd be a head coach, but I recommended Shanahan. So midway through the very first season, I had come back from Denver, and then finally, finally, after six years of foreplay, dreams, and fantasies, the Big Dipper and Little Dipper ended up in the right constellation. And this lady decided she would spend the night at my place. <laughs> yeah. So the phone rings, and it's quarter to three Houston time. It's before caller ID, 1988, and I answer the phone. And the voice on the end says, Wanna? This is Al. To which I said to myself, Self, how dare you interrupt what I was planning on doing (laughs) in about another seven minutes? Um, And then I said, Al's calling me at quarter to three in the morning. I'm going to fuck with him. <laughs> to be fair to Al, it was quarter to one uh, Al right. time. To which I said, Al who? <laughs> <laughs> and 
And he proceeds to go off on a tirade about Shanahan and you made me do this. For 10 years, for all the years prior to that, I would get four Super Bowl tickets that I could buy at face value because Al always took care of his people. Right. For 10 years, I didn't get tickets. Yeah. And then I spoke to Caroli, and the next thing I knew, I was back on the list. What was it about Shanahan that just didn't work with Al Davis? Great, great line. Mm-hmm. Mike always talked about the system. The system. Yeah. The system. We didn't have systems in the old days. Uh-huh. You put on your fucking shoulder pads and you went out. You go, this motherfucker here, he's shading here, so I'm going to do here. And I'm going to stunt with Gary Walker, and this is how we're going to take care of it. Yeah. But Al kept yelling, systems don't win football games. Players wear football games. Yeah. Systems don't win, f- you know. Silver helmets with the pride and the poise and the black pirate. On. That what's when football. And he's just going on and on and on and on and on. He said, what do you think I got Lyle Alzado for? I got him for six games. I got him for two against his old team. I got him for two against San Diego. I got him for two against Kansas City. No kidding. I want that guy to kick ass because I have to win those six games in my division. Then he went down, boom, boom, player after player after player. Yeah. He said, players win games, not systems. That's, that's interesting because you, you look at Shanahan's system down to Kubiak, right. everything they did in Denver, and some of the players that they were able to turn sure. into greater than what they were. But you can't... You get two two great people like Al Davis or Mike Shanahan, and this is one thing that's always amazed me about football is how much it is about the mix that you can take two brilliant people and stick them in a room together, and it can be just it can be mayhem. It can be the opposite of just like okay, it just didn't work out. It can be an absolute disaster. Let me ask you this: as a former player, how many assistant coaches did you play for that you said, you know? This is who they are in life. Yeah. They're, they're going to be, it's almost like the equivalent of spending 20 years in the Army and you got to come out as a sergeant, but you never saw the, the action. You just worked in a mess hall. Right. But I'm a retired 20 year veteran. Right. And they got to give you sergeant stripes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's about that NFL pension's a good Guys one, that were assistant coaches in the NFL that became coordinators, became head coaches, and you would sit back and say to a teammate, what are these guys thinking? Uh-huh. I mean, this guy couldn't motivate anybody, and now he's a head coach because he won an interview? Yeah. Oh, no, and, it, and it's funny because the, the job requirements from one level to the next are so different. Like, what it takes to be a good defensive line coach, and that's why some of the very best defensive line coaches, I could never envision being a coordinator, because... It's that psychotic obsession to detail, like in in a way that I, I don't think you could still have in a book sense, an X and O sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get to the de- you get to the defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator level, and it's a it's a more of a bookish obsession. Then you get the head coach, and that bush, bookish obsess- obsession with being a coordinator sometimes hurts you as a head coach because you have to have that human principle, and I. It's easy to criticize, but at the same time, 
I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. It's so every situation's so different that there is no cookie cutter. This guy's a head coach. This guy isn't. Other than that, you know, you know it when you don't see it. You know when a guy is up there and you're like, okay, I, I just don't see this guy being a head coach. Uh, let me jump in and give you my best head coaching story. I was blessed somehow, some way. Paul Brown, whose games we would take buses or take a train from Buffalo, New York to Cleveland to watch. I saw, everyone talks about the greatest quarterback. To me, Otto Graham was the greatest quarterback I ever saw. But we're talking about the 40s or the 50s. I saw Marion Motley. I saw Len Ford. I saw Lou Groza when he was not just Lou the Toe, but the best pass protector in pro football. So I would see all of these guys. And then I got an opportunity to, to scout for Coach Brown the first two years of the Bengals. And he offered me a full-time job, and I turned him down. Why? And that's what he asked. He said, told, told his secretary, please hold my calls. And he said, Barry, why are you turning this opportunity down? I said, Coach, my father always told me to look at the downside. And the downside of a deal, not being a former player, is that 10 years from now, I'm going to be going to Itabina, Mississippi at Alcorn. 10 years from now, I'm going to be going to East Texas State and Commerce in Houston, in Texas. And the only thing that's going to be different is where the light switch is in the Holiday Inn or the La Quinta that I'm staying at. And as far as conversation... I have nothing in common with a lot of these former players who can only talk football. We have Chicago. We have women's rights. We have all of these civil rights. I mean, all of these things. And I know myself, Coach. I know my passion. I know where my head is at. I know my liberal attitudes are going to go counter to these ex-players, especially on race. And I said, I don't want to put myself into a situation where I could sabotage it because of what's inside the left part of my chest yeah. and my mouth. And we became really close after that to the point that every Sunday after he quit coaching and the Cincinnati Bengals would come to town, Coach Brown would have two newspapers, the sports sections of the Post and the Chronicle, I would bring bagels, lox, and cream cheese, and we would talk mm -hmm. about sports and about the world. And he sat there one day, and we were talking. The headline of the post was Lillis anxious about first winter meetings. Bob Lillis, who was a journeyman player, and he'd be nothing more than a special teamer in the NFL, becomes the manager of the Astros. And Coach Brown says to me, Barry, how well do you think this Bob Lillis will do? And I had stole all the virtues. And he looked at me and he put his bagel down and he said, young man, let me tell you something. After somebody like you or another golden throat gets up and reads this pack of lies about all my contributions to football, I always hit them with one thing. Well, thank you very much, Seth. 
But if I was that smart, then how did I pick the guy with the best seat in the house, Tiger Johnson, sitting up in the press box, to come down to the worst seat of the house and become the head coach? Uh-huh. I'm the guy that told Bill Walsh he was too emotionally unstable to be a leader of men. And then he sat there and he said, 35 miles from where we are sitting, they can press a button down at NASA where we visited yesterday and talk about, you know, the size of a moon rock. But they can't tell me or anybody else who has the right stuff to be that leader. That when you move from there down to the field and when you move your derriere over 24 inches in the dugout to be the manager or 24 to be the head coach of a basketball team, there's nothing in any computer to tell you that. Right. And I laugh at that because it is so true. How many, Seth, how many times since you and Mike have been working together have you done a black, well, here it comes, Black Monday. This guy, they don't wait till Black Monday. They fired him with five games to go in the season. Uh-huh. And then we go through all of the candidates and all of the deal about this guy wins the press oh, conference. Oh, yeah, no, or, or why Mike D'Antoni is too old to yeah. coach the Rockets. Uh-huh. It just, it's, it's one thing you learn over and over again. Well, you do as a player, too, because a lot of times in minicamp, you'll feel, you'll think, all right, this rookie they just signed, he's no good. Like, he's just not going to make it. Uh, and usually, usually you're right, because sometimes you can tell a guy flat out just doesn't have it. But then there's that one guy every now and then sure. that figures out a way. And maybe he doesn't end up being a Hall of Famer, but he, he figures it out and he makes it. And I just, I never wanted to be that guy that tells somebody you can't make it and then end up being wrong about that. Because that, cause that means on the other side, there's some guy that maybe could have made it, but gets discouraged when you tell him he can't make it. But now I'm in a job where I'm saying all the time about who can and can't make it. I try to remember that. I try to remember that it's more about, okay, this is what they need to do. This is what they have to overcome. Mike D'Antoni, look, he had to, to, to come as close as he did to knocking off the Warriors. He had to do things differently than he'd ever done before, and they ended up with a defense that actually was a scrappy, nasty defense in the playoffs. Without so, Patrick Beverly, too. Right, without Pat, yeah, no kidding. They got big, they, they finally, poor, poor Pat Beverly. Beverly, can you imagine how Beverly would have just thrived on that defense, how much he would have loved it? Um, you mentioned Al Davis, and, as, and I was reading some old articles about you. I had heard the story about the old Oilers owner, Bud Adams, kicking you off the team mm-hmm. plane. I didn't realize that Al Davis's name came up in that story, too. Yeah. Why, why did Bud Adams kick you off the plane? I know you're a spy for that other Jew. That's, the, that's what he says. Exactly. I know you're spying for that Jew, Al Davis. And he kicked you out. How, where was this, on a layover? No, or a- no, no. This was, this was at, we used to have every Tuesday, the sportscasters and sports writers luncheon uh-huh. at an old steak restaurant across from the Dome. And we would come, and whether it was Arnold Palmer coming in or Jack Nicklaus to promote the Houston Open or Mario Andretti and Johnny Rutherford to talk about a race up at College Station or if the Pirates were in, you know, here's Chuck Tanner and Willie Stargell coming to have lunch with us. I mean, that's what it was like, and we would all do our interviews at that time, and then they'd get up and we'd be rolling tape, and we had enough tape to last us, and for some reason, Bud was there. 
their PR said, you know, it'd be a good idea for you, bud, when there's nothing going on, just to come out. So when I interviewed Bud, I could make Bud sweat if it was 107 degrees. I could make him feel like he was in, in the uh, H-E-B frozen food section. <laughs> All right? So Bud's coming out to this luncheon. So this is a goodwill gesture almost, Bud, or you think that's what his people are telling him. Right. So he turns to Mike. He said, do I have to do this? And he goes, yep, you got to do it with every station, Bud. Uh-huh. So the second question... You know, the first was the problem, you know. So what do we owe this honor to? No one is getting fired. No one's getting rehired. (laughs) And, you know, he gave me some stupid answer. And then I asked him a question. He goes, I'm not going to answer that. I know and everybody in football knows that you're working for that Jew. You're a spy for that Jew out in Oakland, Al Davis. Really? I said, really? I said, do I have a Dakota ring? (laughs) You know, it, do I have a secret Dropbox that you're spying on? No, 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 everybody knows you Jews stick together. Is he saying this into the microphone? He's saying it in the microphone. Really? Yeah. And um, he says, no more questions, and you're off the plane. You're off the charter. So on the seminal evening... After the Houston Oilers lost in 1979 to the Pittsburgh Steelers, 80,000 fans, including a kid named Gary Kubiak, Mm -hmm. fit into the Astrodome to welcome home their conquering near here, you know, their conquering near Super Bowl team to the Astrodome. Pittsburgh Airport was shut after the Oiler team charter got home. I got home at 3.30 the next afternoon. <laughs> you missed out on all of missed that. Missed out right? on everything. Riding the motorcycles out on the turf yeah, and all that. Yeah, missed out on all of it. What uh, did you? So you didn't air that audio? What? Of course I aired oh, it. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I can just imagine. Oh, what, yeah. That was 1973. What year was it? This was 1979. Boy, I'm just amazed that it didn't become bigger news. We didn't have social media at yeah, that time. Yeah, it wasn't so. nobody. If it didn't get picked up by somebody larger yeah. than a couple of days, then that, that was pretty much because it. Because of social media, I don't go to any Money Monday press conference that Bill O'Brien has. Mm-hmm. And the reason I don't go is because of my knowledge of football. And he comes out and he says, well, what happened, you know, to, to uh, you know, what happened on that particular play where uh, there was no help in the middle of the the field. I said, you guys were just playing a Tampa 2. There was no help. Well, it may have looked like a Tampa 2, but it really was was an over with a banana coverage and this and that. So if I start getting into a pissing contest on his own turf Uh with his own terminology and his own film, then it becomes Barry Warner being the story, not the Houston Texans. So I'm not going to go to ask Pablum like many of our colleagues do in the media. So the easiest way to keep myself from years ago would be different. Years ago, I'd go toe-to-toe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had, a great, I had a great Monday one day when, when Bum would come in. Bum was always better after a loss than he was after a win. So the Oilers lost to Miami on a Sunday. 
So Bum comes in for his noon press conference, and Bum always had great friends. He had Bobby Finger, who flew on the team charter. He was the couch coach. And Harold from Harold's in the Heights, uh-huh. famous na- nationwide haberdasher, would give Bum clothes to wear. And Bum comes in, gets outcoached by Shula. And I said, Coach, did you get that game plan yesterday from Sears? Or did Harold have it inside? <laughs> you know, making light of it. Right, right. Right? Yeah. And Bum said, had a said, relationship with him. Bum said, that. Barry, that ain't funny. And walked out and slammed the door. So every writer <laughs> oh, in the media, I'm the anti-hero. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because my brazenness and my wanting to be the story, you know. So is it, you, you find yourself in a press conference having a hard time. Are you, are you trying to suppress yourself in some respects? Yeah, I, I would, which is why press conferences, for the most part, are a circle jerk. Uh-huh. I can say that because we're on a podcast. Yeah, it's a waste of time. It, 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 it's a big dog and pony show. It's, it's hard because sometimes when you miss them, if it's that day where a coach actually felt like they really wanted to offer something up mm-hmm. or were feeling a certain kind of way, then maybe you miss an opportunity. But a lot of times the hard questions, you know that 90% of them are going to get a cliched answer. Yeah. But they have to be asked. So you ask them, and then the coach makes you look like an idiot because it was a dumb question. And what, what kind of answer did you expect anyway? What did you ask Dwayne Brown that got a, a certain amount of commotion? No, I, I asked Wade Smith. Oh, it was Wade Smith. Wade okay. Smith, as I'm walking, taking the elevator down, and as I'm walking through the cadre of fans that are disgusted and drunk and leaving, and I had a couple of different people say to me, one, an old lady... And the other guy, 35 or so, just tell these guys thanks for ruining our Christmas. So that resonated. You know, I heard that, you know, and I read the body language and I saw him. So in the flow of my conversation with Wade Smith, I asked Wade, what do you have to say to fans who think you guys ruined their Christmas? And wow. I mean, Wade is one of the nicest people in the whole wide world. If looks could kill, <laughs> right then and there, there would have been a Christmas Eve burial. And, and he just really took offense and really, really, I mean, had the veins in his neck protruded. Uh-huh. And he just really, really, how dare you? And in Christ's name, and how do you com- equate the birth of, uh, you know, the birth of, 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 you know, of the angel, da, 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 and, and this whole deal. And I'm sitting there, and I'm saying to myself, Warner, you have opened a hornet's nest. <laughs> and all the hornet and beekeepers <laughs> are on vacation because it's Christmas. What are you doing? Are you consciously thinking about keeping your faces as stoic as possible in that moment. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm being very serious. Yeah, and I'm not laughing, and I'm nodding, and I go, "Wait, I can see your point. I didn't think we were going in this." And another thing, <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I've never, and you know how how deep a human being Wade Smith is. Oh yeah, yeah, we have him on every week. Yeah, I mean, he's tre- he's a tremendous humanoid. Yeah, 
And with what he has done, listening to your show and what he has done around the community, is he is the anti-hero in the sense because he's so anti some of the antics we see from players. Yeah. And uh, that, was, that was interesting. That was a, a quote you had in the Houston Chronicle just last week uh, about your approach to radio and how you handled your career. Quote, I didn't get involved with double entendre or lazy tangents that are prevalent in our industry. I used the microphone as a telephone to tell people what I know. Unquote. And now immediately, being the self-centered person that I am, I thought, well... I'm guilty of at least a little bit of that. So I wonder, because I know you and I have great respect for each other. Um, but that is, that's kind of the trend in radio has become much more personal, I suppose. Uh, well, uh, or more, more about the host's personality it, and personal life. It, it's less about sports. You cannot uh-huh. turn on in this city and listen to 60 minutes of pure sports. I mean, on your station one day, and I'm not picking your station out. Uh, the afternoon show, spent 15 minutes during drive time eating pizza to figure out which pizza tastes the best during drive time. Uh Okay, I mean, it's not during the dog days of summer. It was during either the football or the baseball season, and they're spending 15 minutes of their time talking about something that has nothing to do. I have never used the word douchebag on the air. Yeah. I've never come on and said, well, I got the answer to the Astros hitting problems when they were losing 100 straight. They should go down to Cindy's and buy two double dong dildos and tape them together and use it as a baseball bat. <laughs> no, that to me is not humor. That to me, there is humor. And you and, you and, and Meltz are organic now, the way that it comes out. And I love, because I've been there with you two, I can see how Mike's, Mike's face is blushing. Uh-huh. I mean, in some ways, Mike is a high school sophomore when he hears some things coming out. He's, I can see Mike going, this is not where I expected Seth to be going. He's like, he's like a high school Puritan. Yeah, I mean, he really is. I mean, it, it, but God loved Mike. Yeah. No, no, I know, and there's a difference between, I guess, it's when it's organic and when it's yeah. when it's a shtick or when it's done for effect. But I, because I, I catch myself too after shows sometimes, where you're trying to be as natural and impulsive as possible and just let a, a free flowing stream of consciousness go. But then you also have to balance that out with, okay, yeah, there are people driving their kids to school right mm-hmm. this moment, and uh, and. And that, what, where, where do I draw the line and what kind of, exactly. like, how far of a double entendre do you and, and, as, and as a father and a grandfather, I'm more conscious of that. Yeah. I don't ever want you or your wife, when your daughter, who was now 13, and I remember her when she was in a bundle, but say when she was five years old, I don't want her any time from the time she was five to 13 to your beautiful wife having to press the button yeah. or explain I mean, what's a dildo? Yeah. That's just not me. Are you, you know what I'm amazed is that you're allowed to say douchebag on the air. Yeah, well, I'm a, I still don't get it. <laughs> I, I, I don't get it either. It's but. like it's, it's way worse than some of the, if you think about the physical function, it's way worse than some of the other uh, things that you're not allowed to say yeah. on air. It, it, look, the, the, the one thing you've got to understand about radio, 
is that AM radio today is still governed under the Federal Communication Act of 1933. Where there's specific... Are there specific words? Well, I, oh, well it's, no, it's no, specific just, body parts. I'll give an example. Yeah. There's a great station that people don't know about. It's called 650 AM. <laughs> yeah, we own it. You're a, you're a day timer. <laughs> yeah. You're on from sunup till sundown. Why should 650 have to protect 660, 670, and 640, and 620? All righty? Uh-huh. Why should they have to protect a 50,000-watt station coming into Houston on that six-band? Uh-huh. There's no reason. I mean, nobody from Houston go, oh, wow, that's great. Let's drive to Minneapolis-St. Paul to buy our next Suburban. You know, You're saying, world. oh, the fact that nobody's allowed to broadcast on 650 here. Well, or, the, the, or nobody's night, allowed nighttime, to broadcast on... The, the nighttime signal is a joke. Yeah, but that's the, right. You're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to... We can't broadcast right. 650 during the nighttime because there's another 650 in Memphis, yeah. actually, that sometimes we can hear it here, sometimes we can't. Right. So, but you can hear it clearer at yeah. night. So what that does is that it stifles competition. Yeah. And, but the FCC doesn't care because they can make more money selling one band to a cell phone company than they can with all the fees they get on AM radio. Oh, really? And we have, look, we have people right now, curmudgeons, that are saying that radio has seen its golden years and radio is a dying media because of podcasts, because of everything you want right here on your phone Mm -hmm. that people don't need unless there's an act of God, Hurricane Harvey. Mm Mm-hmm. Where immediately, Where immediately you need information now. You need information now and you can't get it on your TV. It's live you have and no, it's local. You have yeah. no electricity. Yeah. Well, you know, that's where it is with podcasts, too, or, or internet radio right. or anything, where as awesome as it is, and I listen to podcasts all the time, our, our shows get podcasts and they actually, they've gotten to the point where they're making money now. Um, but it's still not the same as pressing a button in your right. car and it being right there. Like, we always, we, we overestimate how, we underestimate how lazy we are mm-hmm. as human beings and the ease of access and having something now versus like, okay, I'm going to check a podcast about this current event later. There's something about hearing it right now. Right. Live and, live and local to me is something that is still, that's the way I grew up and cut my teeth. But you mentioned something as you quoted from David Barron's article. I use the microphone. And I would always take, and you can ask Bootsy, Paul, go on tomorrow morning. Gavin Spittle, who was brilliant. Yeah. Gavin Spittle, the old program, the old director, program director. He's up in Dallas now, right. but he was the program director. So he would time. take all these newbie interns and send them. To, I, I was his Walt Kowalski from Grand Torino. Get off my lawn! <laughs> so we'd send them in to me for a little reality check. And I'd Call these guys in. I go, what's this? They go, it's a mic. Wrong. It's a microphone. It's like, you know, and, they're, and I say, no, dumb shit. It's a telephone. What's that out there? And I would point, well, that's the Astrodome. Wow, and there's Reliant, and there's the bubble. Now, I want you to follow my finger east as we go. What do you see there? A bunch of buildings. Uh, More buildings. Wrong. That's the crown jewel of our city. 
That is the famed medical center where nearly 100,000 people go to work every eight hours. Some saving your life, some bringing the food up, some washing the floor, changing dead bedpans, some selling, you know, prescriptions. But 100,000 people are fed that way. And they go, we have a cadre of people right now, and I've maintained this since the day that they opened, Reliant, now NRG. We got 80% of the people that are on the air that if they drove home and we had a 9-11 at the medical center, they would not know how to break format, call the station, and give the who, what, why, when, and where. And then when a PD would say, well, go find the PIO officer, they'd look and they'd go, well, what's a PIO officer? Public information officer. You know, I mean, because they don't know how to ask the who, what, why, when, and where. Uh How many times do you go to a press conference or do you hear interviews where people make a statement? Well, you guys sure did a great job off the boards last night. Not what gave you the advantage when you guys went small about rebounding a team. Questions aren't made. Statements are thrown out there. And we still come back to things. Who, what, why, when, and where. The five tenets of journalism, which I happen to practice. Uh Are you going to get back into it? No. This is your last hurrah? Yeah, my last hurrah. That was your last hurrah? Last hurrah. I hold hold my head up high. This is what I want to ask you. Uh, because I've always been fascinated by you. Uh, like uh, to put it diplomatically, don't, don't be diplomatic. I know I don't need Just to be. I don't know I need Cornell. to be. <laughs> but I want to be grew diplomatic. up in a damn farm. Look, you've you've had run-ins with program directors, co-hosts. Sure. You've you've been not retained at various places. Mm-hmm. You've been, but you've worked. But every time you get rehired, is there? Do you think you fear being fired less than the average person? No. No, it's really. An, it's an occupational hazard. You just, okay. See, I always, wonder, I always wondered about you whether you just genuinely had the I don't give a damn to, well, where, to where you were going to stand up for whatever you thought was right in that moment. Uh, and, uh, it, because uh, part of it, too, was you had confidence in your ability to get another job. Well, I had confidence in my ability, but there were, to me, one of the most important words in the English language, and we don't practice it enough, is that seven-letter word called respect. Made Aretha Franklin her first platinum record, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, that is still, you know, Hall of Fame standard today. But it all comes down to respect. I respect myself and what I stand for and the values that I was instilled with more than a job and more than money. And if I can't work for somebody, when somebody looks at me, and how many times has this happened when you were an endangered servant wearing your, uh, a practice jersey with your number on it, when you had to keep your mouth shut, you had a wife and a kid, you're making a high six-figure income, you need another year to be in the pension plan, and you sit there, and if they tell you to eat shit, you go, yes, would you like with my fingers, a fork, or a spoon? And can I add some ketchup or salt to it? <laughs> um, once a guy lies to me, I'm not going to take his money. Mm-hmm. Football coaches lie all the time because players can't challenge it. But when a program director looks at me and lies to me eyeball to eyeball, 
there is no way I can work for him. I'm sorry. I don't give a damn how many zeros are on the end of the paycheck. I have certain standards, certain old school, and things that were taught to me by my mother and my father. Yeah. And by, and by people. What was that lesson, if you, could, if you could boil it down to one specific lesson or conversation, like what, what would your parents tell you about that? As far as just standing up for yourself? Barry, or is that was, you've always had strong will and had a big mouth and always danced to the tune of your tune, not necessarily authority. I had problems with authority figures when I was seven. Did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, especially, and there's no, there's an abundance of authority figures that weren't as smart as you when you were seven. Oh, absolutely. And you, and you knew it, right? Oh, no, I knew it. <laughs> and you, but you just couldn't keep your mouth shut. The, 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 there were two bits of advice that I've given my son. Number one, there are more of them than there are of us. He said, what do you mean, Dad? I said, there are more stupid people out there that are working in positions mainly government positions, but there are more stupid people out there that do stupid things, and you've got to learn how to deal with that abject stupidity. Number one, you have to learn how to smile and take it and go, thank God I'm not that person. And number two, do as I say, not as I have done. (laughs) That was your advice to your son, yeah. And the... The fact that my son has got his doctorate degree in nursing, the fact that he runs two clinics in Wichita Falls, the fact that he's a professor at Midwestern State University with tenure in the University of Texas system, and the fact that in his spare time, he is the doctor for the SWAT team in Wichita Falls, and once a month goes out and spends two days going through maneuvers with everybody. Oh, no kidding. He's, he's uh, got, like, I got pictures on the wall. He's got ribbons and trophies for being a sharpshooter. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. really? Oh, oh no yeah. No kidding. So he's, he's... Shooting on the move. Oh, wow. And, oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, wow. Stuff like that. He, he doesn't want to just be baggage along for the ride. He also built a, a five-bedroom, half-million-dollar home in Wichita Falls based upon doing as I say, not as I have done. <laughs> Because you never did that. Oh, I did. I was the, you know, I just, I was smarter than everybody. Yeah. Um, we've got, I, I don't want to keep it, I want to keep, keep this. Keep. No, 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 I want to keep it under an hour. Uh, because you've got, you've got an abundance of stories. Yeah, but you've, you, you know, we, I, we I haven't mean, even scratched the surface. We're going to have to do this again. At some point, oh, yeah. I'll start monetizing this thing and I'll pay you for these. Well, I don't, I don't care. Well, the, we've the, got to get it. I was looking in your trophy room earlier, or your picture room. And uh, for one, I want to, I might spend a whole program with you on just the space program and what sure. NASA was like back in the 70s. The, it, excuse me, for those that don't know, my walls are not adorned with Hall of Fame players, Yeah, with pictures of me and Hall of Fame players, with the exception of me and Nolan and Rudy T when they won the championship, which I put a Jiminy Cricket sticker on the trophy, and Les Alexander the next day said, who put Jiminy Cricket on my trophy? <laughs> um, but these men were our heroes. It's a sad, sad commentary that your 13-year-old daughter, who was in League City, spitting distance from NASA, does not get to know the names of Shepard, Glenn, Sherrar, Grissom, that went in, they were our first Picture this, seven men out of 25,000 that were the best of the best yeah. 
What are the What are the odds there? Oh gosh. Okay. Well, you look at. I, I just read Clayton Anderson, right. the former astronaut, and, and friend. He, he mentions you in his book as one of the people he was lucky enough and blessed enough to have meet through the other his way, being an astronaut. The other way around. But he, the stats that he recited about how many, how few astronauts there have been. I think it's still it's less than four hundred mm-hmm. of Russian, American, Chinese. Um, it, it's very few total astronauts out of millions and millions of people. I'm one of the few laymen in the United States of America that personally knew every man who set foot on the moon. No kidding. And to hear their stories. Yeah. I've been in the homes of astronauts when their husband or father are coming home from outer space and the parachute, you see the parachute deploy, and they come down and they land in the water. And you are there with those families to feel that moment. Greater than any sporting thing. Greater with all due respect to Rudy T. and Elijah Wan winning two back-to-back championships. Greater than the World Series because of what it did to me and getting to know these people. I had flight plans for every single launch into space with me yeah. so I could sit down and know on day three when they hit the thrusters and the bo- exactly what it was going to do. Wow. And I would sit there for hours and watch, watch space flights and would cry every time it was lifted off successfully. Boy, it is, it's amazing the more you learn about it and absorb it, how emotional it becomes. And we're talking from, from people like in the space program that are engineers. Mm-hmm. You know, these are scientists and it changes them. Oh. Like, like spiritually and emotionally, it just because you're dealing with such the, the enormity of space and, and the fragility of Earth. It's you, just you mentioned incredible. our dear friend Clayton, who's one of our heroes. Yeah. Clayton was almost a USFL punter. He was he was oh, really? Yeah. He didn't mention that no, in his he, book. Okay. He, he also still referees high school uh, uh, baseball games. I know he's a really well-rounded athlete and scholar. Yeah, a ter- terrific man. Well, let's, we'll save that for the – we've got to do – I'll do a space podcast but, but I mean, with you. He's gone. Imagine being gone from your, your, your hip daughter and your, oh. your ultra-hip wife being <laughs> gone for five and a half months yep. and yep. coming back home and acting like, Mom. Everything's just fine. Got to mow the lawn. Uh, got to go to church. Got to go get, get my hair cut. Got to go this. Got. I mean, it, it, you've been living with people from another country yeah. floating upside down for five and a half months, and now you're coming back, and you're walking on the ground. You're running. You're yeah. running three miles around the park. I that, that was one of the most – I had no idea. I didn't realize just even the physical adjustment it takes to come back from being sure. weightless for, for five months how your body, your, everything, gravity is foreign to your body. The fluid in your ears mm-hmm. has to resettle down. We'll do that. Uh, one question I want to ask you before we, got, we go. we got Ali to do. That would be. We've got to do Ali. We've got to do uh, various, various coaches and players from, uh, from Houston. Um, all of these guys. What's, if I were to interview one other person in Houston, who would you want me to, to go after next? Uh, what subject? Give me a field. Let's do, uh, let's see. Let's stick to the sports world. Who do you want to hear me interview? I think one of the most fascinating people is Hakeem Abdul Elijah. Okay. But getting Hakeem to getting Hakeem to sit down. Mm-hmm. Um, another fascinating athlete, although he speaks terrible because his voice is all 
has been messed up since he came here from Maryland, John Lucas. Oh, yeah. Because how he has changed thousands of lives through the world. Mm -hmm. um, as I look locally, um, there's a great story that would outdate a lot of people because it was 1973. David Eugene Clyde. Picture getting standing room crowds of business people when he pitched a high school game, going to your senior prom, and five days later, starting for Billy Martin no in an American League game where they held the game up 45 minutes so all the people could come in. And David's bouts with a battle, David's bouts with drugs, depression, and he's now coaching a Christian baseball team, which he's done for the last 10 years. Well, that's a great, okay, that's a fabulous great story. human being. Yeah. Fabulous young man, okay, who I, I, I love dearly. Um, you, you can just sit back and look. I mean, going through the 60s, and I'll tell you somebody, not a great speaker, but Elvin Bethay talking about what it was like to be black in the 60s in Houston. Yeah. Uh, one thing we didn't get to talk about, and... and he is a remarkable man because instead of taking all the money that he made, he continued to give back and teach special ed and yep. coach. A man who I drafted in the ninth round on St. Patrick's Day in 1967. You drafted him? When he, yes, I drafted him. I was working for the Oilers at that time, and I got two picks. A sixth-round pick by them of Pete Barnes, who was a 10-year often injured, former high school, former college baseball and linebacker from Southern University, and a kid who I saw play center and linebacker his junior year on film, and then played linebacker his senior year by the name of Kenny Houston. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll have to, I might be seeing Elvin Bethea next week, so I'll... Uh... I'll see if I and can ask Elvin about the time that he picked me up, Hulk Hogan me, carried around the locker room, and dumped me into the ice tub. I told, uh, that was a question I was going to yeah. ask you today, but I did want to keep it to under an hour. We're at 102 right now, so I'm going I'm to tease. You can, you can edit whatever tease, you want to do. I'm going to tease. Uh, no, I'm just going to put you know, I'm, I'm too lazy Excuse to go me. back and edit this too much. Me too. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'll tease the next one the next time you and I meet with, uh, we will talk about the time Elvin Bethay threw you into the, the cold tub. Thanks a lot, man. Really Not appreciate for what? it. And we're at Barry's place. I didn't tell everybody at the beginning. Barry invited me into his home because uh, so, I didn't want to make him schlep all over town. How would you describe, in, in your unique manner, yeah. how would you describe <laughs> my one-bedroom office? Um, I'll, I'll say this. It's your one-bedroom bachelor pad. And it, well, it's a one. Is it a two bedroom with one of the bedrooms? No, in the no, office? it's a one bedroom. It's a one bedroom with, with an office. This is a, it's a swinging bachelor pad. No, no, it no. Is, those it are is. my old days. This is not. This is not one of those depressing bachelor pads. This is a swinging bachelor pad. You've got your stationary bike out in the living room, along with uh, a Pilates sled of Correct. some sort. So I know you because you're rehabbing your neck. Uh, you've got your bedroom, which I didn't. Uh, no, and, and I've got I've bike. got my chair, which the dogs messed up. But that's a chair that goes back, and I sleep in that when I've had my neck or leg or yeah. back or whatever surgery. Which is like a, just one, it's, it's a slightly less torturous form of torture yeah. to sleep in the chair instead of in your bed. Or my doesn't. 22 orthopedic surgeries. <laughs> yeah, gosh. <laughs> 
We'll get into that. That'll be podcast three. And how I'm making I'll a step. comeback playing hockey at age. That's right. You are playing yeah. hockey after seven years off, and now at the age of 70... Four and a half. 74 and a half. Yeah. No kidding. I, well, you know, I'll tell you what. If it, if, it hadn't, if it weren't for your neck surgery, there's no way in hell... I would have thought you were anything like out of your out of your late fifties, maybe. You would you would appreciate this. Jim Crane asked me the other day. So, how old are you, Barry? Yeah. I said, Jim, I got a seventy-four-year-old birth certificate, a hundred and fourteen-year-old body, and a fourteen-year-old mind. You figure it out. You're good with numbers. He just looked at me quizzically, like nobody has ever asked me that in my entire life. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Barry. For what? Oh, for this. What? what for, for having a friend who used to bicycle to work? That's, that's worth another story in itself. I'm turning the microphone off. You are. Why? <laughs> okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 